Good evening, everyone. Um, it is better to be here than Wembley. I can't say that. I have loved being here. I love being here this morning. And I, I said this morning, I love coming to new places where I get to join in and worship God with strangers who are my brothers and sisters. And we get to do that together. It is a beautiful thing and I love it. So thank you for the invite again, David. It's been great. And um, uh, David has enjoyed a weekend off. It's wonderful to be here. This morning I, I talked about breakthrough and um, I told some stories about my dad and how God had broken through and really wanted to encourage um, you to, be, to not give up about praying for our family and friends because there is breakthrough. I encourage you to pray for your family and friends. I had a friend who called me up out of the blue. Um, I hadn't seen him in seven years. I used to play football with him. He got himself in a mess, an absolute mess. And he called me out of the blue. He was in prison. He had lost his family, lost his job, lost his family, everything in a real mess. And he called me out of the blue, and he met with me. He gave his life to the Lord remarkably, but it was because I prayed for him when he broke his leg whenever we played football. He broke his ankle in a really bad place. And I went to hospital and I prayed for him. I laid on hands, I asked God to heal him. He wasn't healed, but he said something happened when I prayed for him, he couldn't understand. And then he seen me at a funeral one time. Our manager died. Well, the guy who set up the team in Newton Breed Baptist, he seen me at a funeral, he said he could see something that was different in me. But whenever he told me these things, I didn't even remember going to the hospital and praying for him. When he told me, I started vaguely remembering when he told me about the funeral, I, I didn't know he was looking at me. But you see, God allows breakthrough to happen in people's lives whenever we commit to pray for them, whenever we are confident that God is in us. And people recognize Christ in us and there is breakthrough. Do not give up praying for your friends and family. That's what I talked about this morning. Tonight, uh, I want to share um, a, a, a passage that is has been given to me whenever I became a Christian. I became a Christian when I was 23. I'm now 40. I don't fit in the catalyst category anymore. I have to create something else so I can go along. Uh, uh, but, um, uh, and it's a passage which we're, we're going to read together um, uh, about the father's uh, heart turning to the children and the children's hearts turning to the fathers. But there's a little proviso, a little footnote I want to put in. I'll be talking a lot about, about fathers and children, but it's, it's not fathers as in biological fathers, and it doesn't even have to be men, okay? It's actually, um, uh, you don't have to be a biological father to be a father figure. You don't have to be a biological mother to be a mother figure. So whenever I'm talking about fathers, it's a broad spectrum of, of elders, leaders as well that I'm referring to. So ladies, don't switch off. Whenever I'm talking about fathers, it's for us all, okay? But there is specific things for fathers and mothers that are obviously different. But actually, lots of this is talking about the father's heart. But whenever the, the Bible is talking about the father's heart, it's also referring to a mother's heart as well, okay? So just keep that in mind if I'm referring to father's lot. I'm, I'm not being sexist. It involves you all, okay? So just that, that, that note. Um, so um, whenever, in our culture in Ireland, we, we love words. We like to tell a good story, okay? Stories count. Our words count. Whenever we speak our words, they become worlds, and our words can change and affect culture. That's the truth. They can be harsh word that changes the atmosphere, or they can be a word that is spoken well over you that can change the atmosphere. Words count. So whenever we come to the, the New Testament, we're going to look at the, the last book of the New Testament, which is Malachi. 
Okay, Malachi only has four chapters, but it's the last book of the Old Testament. Whenever you write a book, the last chapter, the last words are usually important. You want to underscore what you've been saying. You want to uh, make a point, this is important, this is my last word. So the last book of the New Testament and the last few verses of the New Testament are very important, and that's what we're going to read. Usually they bridge a gap to the sequel. If it's a movie or if it's a trilogy book, they, they project the future or they, they underscore what has already happened. So as we come to Malachi, this is the last couple of verses of Malachi, chapter 4. We're going to read it together. Uh, just verse 5 and 6. Very familiar verses. You will know them. I'm reading from the New Living Translation in, in, in all my readings today. Look, I am sending you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord arrives. His preaching will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. This is the last couple of verses of the Old Testament. So the Old Testament ends with this abrupt prophetic promise but also an abrupt warning. The prophets and authors of the Bible are underlying for us the importance of passing on our faith and also the importance of a fatherly heart and how our heart, how our heart and the promises of God are closely linked. So that's how the Old Testament ends. And then we turn that page in our Bibles, okay? We turn that page that then you usually have a dividing page that says New Testament, but that one page, before we get to the start of Matthew, is 400 years. We turn that page from Malachi to Matthew, 400 years have passed. Some scholars think that is the curse, God's silence. Some scholars don't think that. But that's 400 years. And then we come to Matthew. And Matthew 1 is the genealogy of Jesus. Matthew gets into the uh, laying out how Jesus is in the line of David. And he plots it all out. But actually the other three gospels, Mark, Luke, and John, they all start off with what? The story of John the Baptist. They're bridging the gap. They're picking up the piece from 400 years ago. And they start with the story of John the Baptist. Because everybody would know all the Jewish people would know about the promise of the new Elijah, and they've been waiting for 400 years. So here's Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew picks it up in chapter 2, but Mark, Luke, and John nail it from the start, bridge the link. John the Baptist is important. In Luke chapter, in verse, chapter 1, verse 17, Luke says this about describing John the Baptist. He says, he will be a man with the spirit and power of Elijah. Alarm bells are starting to ring in, in the Jewish uh, people here, okay. He will prepare the people for the coming of the Lord and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and he will cause those who are rebellious to accept the wisdom of the godly. The people who were being rebellious were the younger generation and he said they will accept the older generation's wisdom and godliness. And alarm bells are ringing. Is this the one we've been waiting for? Is this who God has been talking about, that our, our, our ancestors have been told us, telling us to look out for. Is this him, this John the Baptist, is this him? So everyone will be aware of it in the culture. And I believe some of you have waited for years, maybe even decades, to see a movement of God in this land. We have seen some amazing things happen, but we've also seen some things that have not been fathered well in our land. 
If I was to ask you what is the supreme purpose of Jesus Christ coming to earth, what would you say? The supreme purpose. I hate it when preachers do this because if I'm in the crowd, I don't know if, if they want me to answer or they're going to tell me the answer and you're all looking at me going like, I don't know. So I'm going, I'm going to, okay, let's, let's, let's say some things. Right? What's the supreme? Don't worry. You're not going to be wrong. Jesus, we know about him. But what do you think his supreme purpose was about coming to earth? To awaken? Salvation. Salvation. Okay. Anybody else? Shout it out. Peace. Okay. Anybody else? Don't be embarrassed. Reconciling us to God. Good. Redemption. These are all good. To bring glory to God. Wonderful. All those are true, by the way. I, I, I want to say this. The supreme, it's, all, it's almost sometimes easier to say what the supreme purpose was not. Actions are different, but the supreme purpose of Jesus coming to earth was not to give us a Bible. The supreme purpose of Jesus coming to earth was not to give us eternal life. It becomes part of the deal. It's not a supreme purpose. Supreme purpose was not to die on the cross. Because he didn't know that was happening, and he asked the Father to take it away. It became the supreme act of love to show the Father's love for us. Supreme purpose of Jesus coming to earth was to make the Father known. And he did that in that supreme act of love. But the father knew it was going to happen before the son knew it. And the son still obeyed. Supreme purpose of Jesus was to make the father known, personally known. That was his purpose. To make the father known to us. Not the father of old. The personal father that he related to could be ours. This heavenly father who is Abba father. Who is personal, relational for you. And Jesus lived his life and died to show us how much the Father loves us and bridge that gap for us to have that personal relationship with us. I said this morning um, uh, that, that Jesus came, that the Father might be known. That was his mission, that the Father could be personally known and the breakthrough from religion is a move from knowing about him to a breakthrough in relationship with him, knowing him personally as father. I shared a little bit of my story about my father today and how he gave his life to the Lord on his deathbed in the 11th hour, which doesn't matter because he gets it all. That's the incredible thing. The first will be last and the last will be first. You see, I can know about my earthly father who I didn't have much of a relationship with him and I knew about him without knowing him personally the way I would like to have. You can know about God without knowing him personally. You can have a father but be fatherless. You can be a father but be an absent one. You do not need to be a biological father to be a father figure. And I don't want my knowledge 
and knowing of God to be secondhand. I want it to be firsthand. I want my knowledge of my heavenly Father to be my knowledge of knowing him because I have encountered his love for myself. I don't want it to be somebody else's experience of God. I want it to be mine. I want it to be personal. I want to own it. Don't miss the Father's love that he has for you personally. Don't live off second-hand experiences of others. You need to encounter the love of the Father for yourself daily, often, afresh. The incredible thing is that the only time that Jesus did not refer to God as his Father, the only time in all the Gospels, and all four Gospels, the only time that Jesus did not refer to God as Father was on the cross. The only time he didn't call God Father. What he lost in that time, we gain for this time. So he cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? I would suggest that even as the sin of the world as of yours and my sin is put on Jesus on the cross and the Father turns his back, it's the only time that Jesus did not know God as Father personally. The unknowing of God personally broke him, tore him apart. He did not know that distance before ever, but the father could not look at the sin placed upon his son, and he turned his back. And in that moment, I would suggest that Jesus even got religious, and he used a religious name for God, not a personal name. And he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not father, father. Because he's never on had that a feeling of not knowing his father. But what he lost in that moment, we gain for all moments. The Holy Spirit is placed in us, that Christ lives in us so that we may personally know the father's love. That's the gospel that Jesus paid the price, that we who trust in him and know him can have a personal relationship with the father because Christ is in us. That's the wonderful gospel. It's incredible. Incredible love the Father has shown us and has promised to remain in us. And isn't it wonderful that also we know whenever we feel distant from God, whenever we feel as if we can't connect with God, and whenever we feel actually God's not there, that we can remember that Jesus felt the same way on the cross. He knows And he's done it for us so we may know the Father personally and trust his love for us to be supreme. So my little thought about this in terms of fathers and in terms of fatherly figures or mothers or elders, I'll, I'll keep trying to say that sometimes, but when I, in this passage, because it says fathers, I just keep on sticking to fathers. But my little thought is this, a good father dresses us for the future. A good father dresses us for the future. He passes good things on. My youngest boy, Nathan, he's four and a half years old. He's a messer. All my kids are messers, um, and I've got myself to blame for that because I like to play pranks on them and stuff. My, actually, my oldest boy played a prank on me when he was five. He pretended that he had run away from a park, and he hadn't, and he watched me run about like a lunatic looking for him. Like, 
phoning the police and everything. I thought he had been kidnapped, and he came out from underneath the bench, pointing and laughing. Daddy, you were really panicking there, weren't you? And I was like, don't you ever do that again. Uh, but anyway, I'm not talking about him. I'm talking about my other one. My youngest boy, Nathan, is four and a half. I just remembered that story. Uh, and uh, uh, he, he has this little thing. Whenever I try and dress him, every time I go to dress him, he, he just thinks it's a game. So I go, okay, Nathan, it's time to get dressed. And he just goes, never. That's what he says. And he runs, he just bolts because he knows I have to catch him. So it's got to the point, even whenever I say, Nathan, it's time. It could be time to brush your teeth. It could be time to have breakfast. It's just, if I get that sentence out, it's just, never, and he's off. Even if it's time for sweets, he doesn't realize whatever it is. Never, he's just off because I have to try and catch him. It was cute and funny the first few times. Now it is actually, Nathan, just come here. But, anyway, so it, it, but I, I, love, I love the stories in the Bible where fathers or father figures clothe their children with promise. They dress them for the future. They clothe them in something of authority and power. And it's throughout Scripture, there's this frequent, uh, consistent habit of people in a leadership position, in an elder position, motherly figures as well, passing on things to the younger generation. It's throughout Scripture, and it's beautiful. If you think way back uh, to the story of Joseph, I love the story of Joseph, but if you think of Pharaoh, Pharaoh takes off his own signet ring and gives it to Joseph, takes a cloak and clothes him in it, places a big gold medallion, a bit of bling around his neck, and it puts him in front of the people and says, this boy of promise is who you need to listen to. And he clothes him with authority and says, this will be your leader, listen to what he says. Throughout Scripture, we have these, uh, these incidents where, where the figures that we look to, we think of Elijah and Elisha. Elijah is trying to find somebody to pass on his ministry to, and he sees Elisha with the ox in the field, and he goes up behind Elisha, and he takes off his own cloak, which identifies him uh, as the man that he is, which has his authority. He takes off his cloak, and he places it over Elisha's shoulders and says, give him a double portion, Lord. And he passes on, and he hands on what he has to this young man. We think about Moses and Joshua. Moses calls out Joshua in front of all the elders, in front of everyone of Israel. He calls Joshua out. In front of them all, he lays on his hands and passes on his leadership to Joshua. There's this sense of passing on promise and clothing people in promise for the future. And it's part of our Christian heritage that we need to do. In Ireland, we need spiritual fathers and spiritual mothers who prophetically say to us, I dress you with the clothes of who you will be. I dress you with the clothes of who you will be for God. I don't see you as you are right now, but I see you as who you will be in the future. It's so important. We don't need fathers or mothers who look at us um, right now as we are or we're still like when we were still a wee nipper and terrorizing the place and, and, and just, you know, not up to much good, but they still look at us like that. We don't need fathers and mothers like that. We need fathers and mothers who actually in our hurts and in our pains and our weaknesses and our success and our failure, um, you know, they can get alongside us and say, do you know what? You'll get through this time and I see you like this. I see my two sons and my daughter as they are now, and I, but I dream of what they will be. It would be cruel of me to try and keep them the cuddly little kids that they are now, spiritually, physically, emotionally. It, it wouldn't be right. I think in the church across Ireland, we have maintained our traditions. 
guarded our traditions, protected our denominations, and lots would say fathered our traditions. With the consequence being we have lost our children. If you look across the church in Ireland, we have lost our children. This church, it's fantastic to see how many children and young people and young adults that are here, but actually the church across Ireland have held onto their traditions and the consequences being they've lost their children. This is my challenge to the, uh, the father figures in the room. I'm picking on the older people here at the minute. Don't worry, the young adults' time will come. But this is my challenge to the motherly figures, the elders in the room. Are you champions of the children or are you guardian of the past? Are you champions of the children or are you a guardian of the past? You see, good fathers are never jealous of the children. Good fathers are never jealous of the children. We need spiritual fathers and mothers who spot children of promise and pass things on. And you know those older people who do that, that spot something in you and sets of God and it lifts your head because somebody has spotted something in you. We need more of that. Younger men and younger women in the audience, I have a challenge for you. And we're going to read uh, from First Kings for this. It's a scripture I found a couple of months ago that's really been speaking to me. I'll give you a little bit of context about it. Um, uh, it's, uh, so the, the person we're focusing on is Rehoboam and Jeroboam. I'll nearly get that right. But Rehoboam was Solomon's son. Okay, so King Solomon had died. Rehoboam was, was going to be king. And um, we, we bring into the context that there was a prophecy given uh, to King Solomon that actually Israel would be divided. It would not be one king. It would be split into tribes of two and ten, two in Israel and ten in Judah. And actually, um, Rehoboam would not be king of them all. He would only be king of two, and there'd be a king of ten that would not be him. It would be this guy called Jeroboam. So King Solomon didn't like that, and neither did Rehoboam. And they, they made Jeroboam flee. But Solomon is dead. And Rehoboam's about to be king, but Jeroboam's coming back. Okay, so that's where we pick this story up. I hope I didn't lose you with me. You get it? Good, okay. So 1 Kings 12, it's quite a long passage. Um, let's, let's go through this together, um, starting at verse 1. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had gone there to make him king. When Jeroboam, son of Nebat, heard this, because he was still in Egypt, where he had fled from King Solomon, he returned from Egypt. So they sent for Jeroboam, and he and the whole assembly of Israel went to Rehoboam and said to him, your father put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. Rehoboam answered, go away for three days and then come back to me. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam consulted the elders or the father figures who had served his father Solomon during his lifetime. How would you advise me to answer these people, he asked them. They replied, if today you will be a servant to these people and serve them and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your servants. 
But Rehoboam rejected the advice of the elders the father figures gave him, and he consulted the young men who had grown up with him and were serving him. He asked them, well, what is your advice? How would, how would we answer these people who say to me, lighten the yoke your father has put on us? The young men who had grown up with him replied, these people have said this to you. Your father has put a heavy yoke on us, but your yoke make our yoke lighter. Tell them this. My little finger is thicker than my father's waist. My father laid on you a heavy yoke, <laughs> I will make it even heavier. My father scores you with whips, I will scourge you with scorpions. So three days later, Jeroboam and the people returned to Rehoboam, as the king had said, they come back in three days. The king answered the people harshly, rejecting the advice given by the elders. He followed the advice of the young man. What I see in Ireland is that children's hearts are not turned to their fathers. They're turned to their brothers. Or they're turned to their sisters. Or they're turned to their peers. Young adults in the room, young mothers, young fathers, young single people, We're in danger of sin. Do you know what, old men, wise women? It's our turn now. You had a good go, but actually we know best. We know how to fix this thing called church. Thank you very much for your comments, but actually it's our turn now. We're in danger of doing that. We're in danger with our arrogance and our brashness of stepping in where we don't actually know the full story. We think we know best. We listen to the counsel of our brothers or our sisters ahead of the counsel of our fathers and our elders. What this land needs is young men and young women to have the courage to say to their brothers or sisters, do you know what? We need to listen and honor our fathers and mothers. We need to listen to them and honor them. Fathers in the room, father figures in the room, leaders who have gone before us, can I say this, forgive us, us younger people, I'm sort of still including myself in that, even though I turned 40, I shouldn't really be, um, uh, forgive us for our arrogance, forgive us for our brashness, forgive us for our unappreciation for all that you have done and stood for. And can I say with humility, we long for your permission we don't actually need your permission, but we long for it, and even more so, we long for your blessing. We long for your blessing for us to have a go. I said that good fathers are never jealous of the children, but good children should never be envious of the fathers. Children should not begrudge the position that our fathers hold and our mothers hold. Girls, you need good father figures. Guys, you need good motherly figures keeping the theme of being dressed or clothed with promise. I will finish with this and I'll finish quickly. I, I love the account in Exodus of, of the making of the tabernacle. 
Uh, I've, been, I've been starting the Bible in a year again, so I've been reading that recently, and, and it's just fascinating. It's wonderful when you go into the detail, but I love the detail of the priest of Aaron and his sons and his family of their clothing. I'm not into robes and stuff, as you can see, thankfully, uh, but I love the detail. It's extraordinary. You should read it um, in Exodus uh, 26 to 28, around those chapters. Um, so they, they, they have these uh, priestly attire to go into the most holy of places, and you just read over it, but actually the detail is incredible. Um, on Aaron's clothing, he has uh, uh, 12 gemstones, 12 precious gems, and on each of the individual gems is the 12 tribes of Judah. Six is uh, sort of engraved and planted in gold on one shoulder, six other tribes on the other shoulder, and then it's tied with uh, these sashes and lovely linen to the ephod, and on his breastplate, there's the 12 tribes again on 12 precious stones on his chest, and it's all tied together. So when he walks in uh, to the tabernacle, to the most holies of holy, he walks in with the responsibility of the fathers who have gone before him on his shoulders, knowing what he went before him, and he walks in with that weight almost, my goodness, I've got the tribes of Israel on my shoulders. But then he walks in with his chest puffed out, knowing that he is part of this story and his head is lifted high because he is part of God's kingdom, part of the tribe, and he can approach God with confidence, with the weight of the responsibility of the fathers who went before him, but also with the confidence in his breastplate that he is part of the story. And we can all say to God, to God together, bring it on, Lord breath of God is in me and I'm part of this story. And yes, I honor the fathers who went ahead of me, but now God is asking of me, are you up for it? You see, something happens whenever younger people honor their fathers and their mothers. Do you know what happens? God is glorified. Something happens whenever older people honor the children and champion the children. Do you know what happens? God is glorified. Not the young people. God. Not the older people. God. Because whenever we recognize God in each of other, God is glorified. That's the point of this whole passage. Whenever fathers' hearts turn to the children and see the godliness in them, God is glorified. Whenever the children's hearts turn to the Father and recognize all that they have done, God is glorified. And breakthrough happens. So tonight... We're going to do a bit of honoring of each other. So if you're 39 or younger, I'm going to say you're a young person. If you're 40 like me and really old or older, you're an older person. But actually what I want, and I don't know you in here, and I don't know how well you know each other, but I'm pretty sure there's people in this room who have had an impact on you. Or maybe they're not in this room. Maybe there's actually people in this church and not here tonight, but you already in your mind know the influence they have had on you. They might be older, they might be younger, but you know what? You've never said thank you or you've never encouraged them. And tonight we're going to start by practicing. There's, there's a song. What is the song again? You're holy, wonderful. During this song, do you know what I want you to do? I want you to think of the people. If you're an older person, you look around the room and you try and spot somebody who's under 40. And maybe you know them, or, and maybe you've seen God do stuff in them, but you know what? It would be wonderful tonight, during this song, prayer ministry afterwards, with a cup of tea, whatever it is, but you get alongside them and you champion them. 
younger people, do you know what? You need to look around this room and see older people in this place who have stood faithful. There was a pledge thing up on that screen. I think that's incredible, that people are giving not for themselves, but for the next generation. People in this church are not giving so that they have a nice spanking new building for themselves. I'm pretty sure they're giving so it's for other people. And that's incredible. And young people, you need to honor our fathers and our mothers who've went ahead of us because they lay down so much for us. They've paved the way for us. And you have the responsibility of them, but you've also got the permission from them to go for it. So during this song, as we sing, holy is our Lord, actually, maybe it's somebody you need to text or just contact. They're not here, but you know it's a, it's a Sunday school teacher from years ago or a, a school teacher or just somebody who's influenced you and you just need to say, do you know what? I thank you for those times you've got alongside me and you've closed me with promise. You haven't judged me, but you've put grace and you've shown me humility and compassion and I thank you for that because God is honored in that. It's not that we just make each other feel good. It's that we're recognizing Christ in one another and championing him. Whenever that happens, ah, we meet with God. My youth work took off. I've seen hundreds of young people come to faith, but in inner East Belfast, it took off whenever young people started to speak things of God into each other. Whenever they said, you know what, I see how kind you are, and it's a godly thing, and these were community kids who never were told they were kind. But whenever we recognize God in each other and the good in each other, God is glorified, God is honored, and God moves. And actually, when we get into adults, and when we get into our church setting, we stop doing that. But it's powerful whenever we call out the things of God we see in each other. Something shifts in us and something shifts in the other person. So let's stand. If I can call the band up. I'm just going to pray. And uh, we're going to sing together. And it might be that, you, you know, I'm going to mess up the Baptist world here. It might be that you even move out of your seats and, and go along to somebody and, you know, stand with them and say something. Maybe you do that after with a cup of coffee. You're free to do whatever it want. But I'd say this, you know, respond in some way. They might not be in this room, but actually respond to that person, younger or older, that you need to champion or bless. Let's stand. I'm just going to pray, and then uh, the band are going to lead us. Father, thank you, uh, Lord, that... You love it whenever we honor each other. Father, thank you uh, that you're in the business of revealing your love through us, that your chosen mechanism is through your word, through your church, through your Holy Spirit, uh, through each other. So Lord, uh, give us confidence and, and humility and grace as we honor you, as we see you in one another. Lord, we thank you for the people who have impacted our lives, who have shown us your ways. We give you thanks for the people who have blessed us and revealed your love to us and champion us and encourage us. And Lord, help us to have eyes to spot that in others, I pray. And I thank you for the, uh, the elder people, uh, the, the elders in this, uh, in this church, 
Lord, who are investing in the future, not for themselves, but for others. Bless them, Lord. I pray for the elder people in this room who they think they don't have a role, but yet they're released to champion this younger generation. Bless them and use them, I pray. And I pray for the younger people in this room, Lord, lift their heads to see who you are. Give them confidence in their faith, confidence in church, confidence in their calling, and confidence in what they're carrying. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.